and the words I speak and the words we hear in your words of life to us, our God. Amen. Hallelujah. Christ is risen. Thursday was Ascension Day, so we have a picture of the Ascension up there. We've just had one of the versions of the Ascension, uh, Luke's second version in the Gospel of Acts, uh, Gospel of Acts, the Book of Acts, uh, which is different from his version in the end of his Gospel uh, by 50 days. So if you read his Gospel, the Ascension happens on Easter Day. Um, so he changed his mind between writing the Gospel and writing the Book of Acts. So there are three versions of the Ascension in the Gospels. There's John's version, so he ascends and returns on Easter Day, as the Gospel of Luke, ascends on Easter Day, and then the Book of Acts, he ascends 50 days later on the Feast of Pentecost. So take your pick. Uh, and what uh, all of that means is that uh, we are nearly at the end of Easter. So Easter the week of weeks, the great 50 days, this season where we celebrate and commemorate the resurrection, uh, where we have seven Sundays, seven a week of weeks, uh, all around the resurrection, the season that sits at the centre of our church year, which ends with Pentecost uh, next Sunday. Actually, it's Pentecost is 50 days, it's 40 days for the Ascension. And during these seven weeks, uh, we've had, first of all, the stories that reminded us, told us about the stories of the the resurrection, the stories of Easter. So we had uh, Luke's version of the resurrection. We had John's version of the resurrection. We had, I think we had the story uh, of the the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. uh, And we had some of John's later stories as well, uh, particularly the one uh, added in, in uh, chapter 21. And then over the last uh, few weeks, uh, we've had uh, stories about um, from John's Gospel about what all this means. So, um, just to kind of retract a bit. Uh, so we had stories of the resurrection, of how the crucified Messiah was raised from death to become the fully human Messiah in a way that you are not fully human. And then in the story of the Ascension, we have uh, how this fully human Christ returns to the heart of the Godhead. We should blow our minds, really. Like, we often think about God far away from humanity. There's this big divide between us and God. And yet, in the story of the Incarnation and the Ascension, we are reminded that we are made in the image of God, that God comes amongst us in the person of Jesus and then ascends as the fully human one back into the Godhead. Which, to simplify it, says that God is in you and I, and we are in God. There is no divide. We are in the heart of God, and God is in our heart. Simple as that. All we have to do is live it. That's where it gets tricky. And that's really what the last three or four weeks have been as we've listened to John's Gospel. Uh, And what we've been listening to for the last few weeks is a little chronologically challenging because it's Jesus' last words before his arrest. So we've kind of jumped back over the crucifixion to just before that. Uh, 
But nonetheless, it's important because it's Jesus, in a sense, teaching his disciples what what it means to live in light of the resurrection. Which, at the time the story is set, is pretty hard for them to grasp because they're trying to get their head around the fact that there's all this danger and darkness around them and so all this good news seems to be far away. But for John's community, the community that the gospel was written out of and for and for us, all those who hear his gospel later, these are the words that remind us what it means to live in the light of the resurrection. So today, some fun facts about John. Well, first fun fact is there is no Lord's Prayer in John. So you can only find the Lord's Prayer in Matthew, Mark and Luke, the Synoptic Gospels. John has nothing that looks like the Lord's Prayer. And the second fun fact about John is that there's no agonizing prayer in Gethsemane. Uh, Straight after this, Jesus will go to Gethsemane and he will be arrested. The story just carries on. The, The words we just heard are the last words that Jesus speaks to his disciples. The last words that Jesus speaks apart from in the trial and on the cross. He's done. So it's very different from the other three Gospels. So today we've just heard the final words, take two. So what do I mean by that? Well, last week we heard the last words of the last words, take one, the end of chapter 14. So the last words of somebody are very important. And last week we heard the last words, his final wrap-up of his last words. And he finished that with, let us stand and go. And then we have three more chapters of words. So clearly, well, most people think clearly, later on, John or somebody else said, I don't know, people are still not getting it. I need three more chapters about loving unity. And he just plonks those straight in there. And the next verse from what I just read says, and they, after he said these words, they got up and went. So it kind of matches the end of chapter 14. It really does feel like 15, 16, 17 were just plopped in there. Um, holeless bowlers without any kind of trying to smooth things over. So last week we heard first version of last words. This week we hear the second version of the last words. And these last words are in fact a prayer. And some people say that if you were looking for a place where Jesus is teaching people how to pray in John's Gospel, because that's what the Lord's Prayer is, this is it, chapter 17. So he finishes his long talk with a prayer. So instead of the agonized prayer in Gethsemane, which he does on his own in the other Gospels, in John's Gospel, he prays at the meal in the middle of his disciples, and they are there to hear the prayer. And it's not an agonized prayer. In John's Gospel, Jesus is at peace with what's happening. When he talks about glorification, which he talked about at the end of today's reading, he's talking about crucifixion. And he's not talking about it in a... In a uh, I'm terrified by this. He is at peace. This is the way that the Father loves him. Sounds a bit weird to us, but that's how it goes. So this prayer is broken up into three parts. Jesus prays for himself. 
So in year A of our lectionary, we hear that prayer. And then Jesus prays for his disciples in year B on the seventh Sunday. And so we hear that prayer. And then the last one is Jesus prays for us. Verses 20 to 26. Year C, we hear that. So next year we'll go back and hear verses 1 to 5. So it's a way of how we should pray. We pray for ourselves. We pray for those we live amongst who are with us. And then we pray for the world at large. And, well, that last one, he prays for us. How many of you stopped and read John 17, 20 to 26 and thought, this is Jesus praying for each one of us. Not just the people gathered in that room, not just for John's community, but for everyone who will believe because of the actions of those disciples. And that is you and I. So today we've been privileged to sit with Jesus as Jesus prays for us. Which is an astounding thing if you think about it. And in these prayers Jesus reminds us of the story of crucifixion and resurrection and ascension. That that story is not the end. But it's the beginning. Jesus is teaching them and us how to live in light of that story. Jesus is showing us, has shown us what it means to live, and now he invites us all to live resurrection lives. To live resurrection lives in the here and now. So what does that mean? What does it mean to live a resurrection life? Well, one could say that my sermons over the last seven and a quarter years have been all about what it means to live a resurrection life. So you probably know lots about it because you've heard so many sermons from me and other people so I'm going to give you an opportunity to turn around and talk to your, talk to your neighbours about it. What does it mean to live a resurrection life? What does it mean for you? So you've got four or five minutes to talk about what does it mean to live a resurrection life? What does it mean to live in light of the story of crucifixion, resurrection, ascension? Have a talk. Any thoughts? It's complicated. It's complicated. Right? Anything else? Well, we feel it's a sort of a reminder of how we should be living all the time, not just in this. Right. Absolutely. Yep. Any other thoughts? John, what are your students are about living out? Yep. But how we do this all humans is challenging at times. It is. It's not easy. And it is easy. All at the same time. Uh, so I'm going to finish with um, just a couple of things. So I've been reading a book by an English priest, Dave Tomlinson. He and his wife set up a church in a pub, Holy Joe's in London, um, amongst a whole lot of people that wouldn't normally go near a church. 
and he's a kind of down to earth kind of guy that likes going to the pub after funerals and having a few drinks with people and and his take on what Christianity is about. So uh, the, the book is um, uh, How to Be a Bad Christian and a Better Human Being. Uh, and he's written a few books. So um, he, he talks about a couple of things that I just want to finish with today. So the first is the butterfly effect. Um, so this is a term coined in the 1960s by a meteorologist, Edward, Edward Lorenz, uh, who wanted to, wanted to talk about why predicting the weather was so difficult. Like, at one hand, it should be easy, and yet they so often get it wrong. Why was that? So he wanted to explore the possible... And so he wrote a thesis about how the flap of a butterfly's wing in, say, Brazil could affect the timing and path of a tornado in America, which sounds improbable. But actually, the maths stacks up, that the micro-turbulences from the flapping of a butterfly wing sets off a chain of reactions that will affect that timing and path of a tornado. And that's why predicting these things is so difficult, because they cannot account for all these micro-turbulences, these things that, that have happened at a distant time and place. And it's a reminder for us of the small things that we do that can have a significant effect. So two examples of that. One day in a bus in America, a black woman decided that she was tired and was going to go and sit down in that seat in a seat reserved for white people. Now, the civil rights movement had been going in America for quite some time. There were a lot of established leaders of that movement. But that action, small as it seemed, triggered something. Suddenly, that civil rights movement gained traction, and an unknown pastor became the president of the civil rights association in their town, Martin Luther King Jr. And before you knew it, uh, things were happening all over the states, and the laws were being changed. A small action. Somebody chose to sit down where she wasn't allowed to sit. People had done that before but because on that day it had a butterfly effect. Or another example of that is one day uh, Desmond Tutu and his mother were walking down the street in South Africa and a tall Anglican priest was walking towards them. So they went to step off the road as the law said that they should. When a white person was on the footpath, they should step off the footpath and allow the white person to go past. That was apartheid. Uh, but instead, before they could do that, the Anglican priest stepped off the road and allowed them to go past, and he doffed his hat to Mrs. Tutu as she walked past. Now that man was Trevor Huddleston, uh, a fierce anti-apartheid campaigner, uh, who later became a bishop, uh, and that had a profound effect on Desmond Tutu. The fact that a white man would step off the footpath and doff his, cap, his hat to his mother, something he'd never experienced before in his life, he wanted to know about that God of justice, that God that did not support the apartheid structures but worked against the apartheid structures. And it fueled in him a desire for justice. That moment led to a man who became the spiritual heart of the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa and played a significant role in the ending of that regime. That one 
small action. We never know what effect our small actions will have. They may seem small, they may seem trivial, but they could, down the road, have significant effects. And the last story I want to finish with is the story of Carol, who was a hard-drinking ex-drug addict who worked in op shops in north of London. Uh, and when she died, at the age of 45, uh, Dave was asked to take her funeral. Uh, the funeral director said uh, there'd probably be only four people at this funeral, uh, her mum and dad and a couple of other people from the village who came from uh, out of London. Um, and apart from that, she used to be a, 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 dr- a drug addict. They really didn't know much about her. So Dave confirmed all this with the parents, uh, turned up to the chapel to take the service, feeling sad that this 45-year-old was being um, at funeral service and so few people know, knew very much about her and that so few people would be there to say goodbye. But when he got there, there was a crowd of 30 or 40 people of the people who would never be seen alive in a church uh, punks and goths and all kinds of people and he went over to talk to them these were Carol's friends these were the people that knew her who worked with her in op shops in one particular op shop in, partic- in particular um, a lot of them had mental health issues uh, now Carol was their mother she was the beating heart the manager said of their community all of these people volunteered in, in, in op shops uh, and She was the person that held them together. She was the glue. She wasn't a perfect person. She still was hard drinking. She was still a hard party goer. She'd be the last to to finish at the parties, three or four in the morning. Um, But she had become their mother, and they were there to say goodbye to her. Well, the parents were blown away. They'd never known. They'd had no contact with their daughters, really, for 25, 30 years. They'd just knew her as a hard-drinking, drug-taking, rebellious teenager. Um, And they wished they'd actually got to know their daughter. But as I read that story, I thought, that's what resurrection life is like. It doesn't have to be perfect. We don't have to be the best role models in the world. But we do have to live in a way that affects people, that offers love to people, as Carol offered love to that community. And I think sometimes we get a little bit tied up with you know, being pure and all the rest of it uh, and feeling bad about our flaws. But actually, a resurrection life sometimes works because of our flaws, because of the person that we are, when we are also people of love. So I hope you hold on to those. The butterfly effect and the story of Carol, that's what a resurrection life is like and that's what you're invited to live in light of the stories that we've been thinking about for the last seven or eight weeks. So I think we should do a creed today. We don't normally do a creed, but I like one, uh, and it is uh, our last Sunday on Easter, so I invite us to stand, and we will use the creed on page 481.